You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. So we've been talking about worship, and this is one of the ways that we want to really um, just build the heart of joy and build the heart of community back into the art of worship. Um, and, and, you know, we've been talking, Chris, a lot in this last, especially few weeks, but as, as, um, as everybody's come out of exile, we've talked a lot about worship. We've discovered some of our own... Um, you know, just the places where you, you come at worship differently than I come at worship just because everybody is different. And so I thought as part of today's message, because we'll be talking about worship again in Isaiah 43, that I would bring up two of the three worship leaders we've had in 18 years. In 18 years of worship at Mosaic Church, we've only had three worship leaders. <laughs> um, that's a really powerful thing, isn't it? We've got, and they've all been world class. Uh, so between Chris and, and Cindy, we've had, this is 14 years worth of worship leading right here. So thank God for them. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so I wanted to just ask them some questions about how they experience worship as people who lead worship week in and week out. So let's just start here. Go back to a time when you remember feeling that you were really in God's presence. What what did it inspire in you? What did it make you feel? Um, really consumed, um, cl- really close to Jesus, uh, seen, uh-huh. um, just really uh, in awe. Wow. In awe. Yeah. Wow. That's good. Yeah, so um, this is pre-mosaic days, um, I was coming home from work, or just leaving work, and I, I don't know, some, sometimes the enemy just knows knows his spots, because man, I had been dealing with temptation that entire day, temptation toward a sin that wasn't even a part of my life, it wasn't, it wasn't like it was something I actively did at all, or had anything to do with, but man, I just felt so incredibly tempted and so I called up my buddy, and I said, on my way home, I said, man, you just got to pray for me, because I, I feel like I'm on the edge of just tanking, you know, doing something really stupid, and, and, and at the time, I was in ministry, and, you know, seeking to make disciples, and so anyway, he prayed for me, I got home, and I just went to my, what I called my prayer chair, and I just sat there, and I just told the Lord, I was like, Lord, I'm just not going to leave here until you come and minister to me until you change what whatever's going on inside and whatever the, the enemy is doing until you you rebuke him and um, so I just sat there and just kind of just focused on the Lord and just sat there and then after I don't know 20 30 minutes the Lord changed the narrative suddenly I went from having just this incredible sense of temptation right at my door to like the Lord began to give me a vision and, and it was the most intimate encounter with God I've ever had in my 35-year life. Wow. And suddenly my heart was free. 
suddenly it, it wasn't it wasn't just like there was no temptation. It was like my heart had found what I was desiring, what I yeah. was longing for. Yeah. So what's been the fruit of that experience? Well, immediately it was just finally it right sized the temptation. You know, the what looked like gold was exposed for fool's gold. You know, just exposed for what it was. But beyond that, it's always, that's always been my marker that when temptation comes, I can always go, no, temptation's a fake. Temptation's a phony. Like what I, what my heart really longs for is Jesus. And so I just, I let, I let temptation remind me that I long for Christ. And I just, kind of compels me toward intimacy. That's really good. It's yeah. for me, um, I think as somebody who's in, uh, grateful to be in the recovery ministry here, and struggle with codependence, um, it's an issue that's run through my whole life. Mm. And uh, being in God's presence more and more transforms my vision so that I see my circumstances differently. Even if he doesn't change the circumstances, he changes the way I look at them yeah. and the way I receive them. Yeah. Like Paul and Silas yeah. in the prison cell, bleeding, chained, and yeah. they chose to praise. So when yeah. we choose to praise, something happens on a deep, deep level. Wow. Whether it's changing our circumstances or changing us mm-hmm. and both. Yeah, so it's a, so it's a choice. Mm-hmm. It's a choice, which, which makes me ask this question. For, for you, is worship a head issue or a heart issue? Both and. Uh, <laughs> I'm an amoeba. I kind of go like all over the place. But really, at this season of my life, it is um, coming as I am. And so some days I'm all up in my head. Um, and so I come at it from that place, and I usually pull the Bible out, and I let God speak to me first through the Bible. Other days I can't focus on anything, and so I just come as I am. And I mm-hmm. sit there, and I pour out what's there mm-hmm. in my heart, and that's where the worship bubbles up out of. Yeah. You know, so that's both, good. Those and. Yeah, for me, most of the time, worship is going to go from my head to my heart. I, I, um, a pastor that I like, he talks about how sometimes imagination, if you imagine what is true, it kind of brings you deeper into that reality. So I, Scripture talks about how we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And so when I'm, I'm up here worshiping, most of the time my eyes are closed, and I'm actually I'm focusing on Jesus and I'm believing that I'm seated with him in the throne room. Mm. And so I just, I just kind of put my imagination on that until it goes from my head to my heart. And then as it, as it invades my heart, I become more kind of emotionally engaged. But it, it generally starts with my head. That's good. So, so something that I'm hearing from what you guys are saying is there's not a right answer particularly. Um, I, and, 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 if there, and if there is a... A trajectory toward which we're headed, even though there's not a right answer. That trajectory is always that the worship eventually needs to get to that heart level. At some point, deep has to call to deep. Yeah, and, and so maybe there's a, there's a danger in either direction, you know. Stay in your head, you'll miss deep calling to deep. Uh, expect your feelings to guide you or lead you, and you'll be left wandering in the desert. Yeah, sure. so one word, and one word, what best describes the act of worship for you? For me, it's adoration. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think it's submission, but it also is freedom. It's yeah, submission and freedom. Yeah, that's good. 
Yeah, for me, it's joy. And, um, and that's, that's probably been the biggest wrestling for me in this season coming out of the pandemic. Because I, there is, um, I mean, this is just a confession here. There's a, there's a mama thing in me that's wants, come on, people, I want you to be happy. I, I, I sort of need you to be happy so we can all be happy. And, but, it, but it really is, it's, I've, I've found myself in that wrestling, you know, holifying that and understanding that it's not just wanting everybody to be happy. It's really wanting people to experience joy. And, and so worship at Mosaic, I think, has always been characterized by, by that, don't you think? Um, it, so, and, 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 and finding what joy means for every person. Every person is different, you know? I mean, we've, we've already acknowledged that I'm going to be the bounce-around-the-room person, and I get really excited when I see people. Somebody else is going to feel very different. Um, so, so how would you describe... I mean, I've just described it, what I think, but how would you describe worship at Mosaic when we're at our best? Ladies first. <laughs> Free. Mm. Freedom. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, I, guess, I guess for me, it's, it's a combination of joy, freedom, and spirit-led. I think, you know, there's, there does tend to be something that tends to break in here, um, Sometimes it happens at 9 o'clock. Sometimes it happens at 11. But it's like, man, it breaks, and then there's freedom in the house. Uh, and, and then it's, it, it's kind of a back-and-forth, spirit-led occasion. It's like I'm, I'm listening for the Holy Spirit, and I'm trying to step into what he's doing, and I'm trying to enjoy him. But I'm also kind of watching what he's doing in y'all. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm, I'm noticing Mike Barr. I'm noticing... Uh, the praise pit down here, and, and, and it's kind of there's there's a, a back and forth kind of thing that I hope goes up to heaven as a as a sacrifice of praise. So does it happen at home? Does it happen here? Does it happen when we sing? What is worship? If you could put it in a sentence, worship to me is choosing um, to center my life actively center my life around God uh, in order to ascribe to him his worth. Yeah. And, and yes, it, it happens at home, and it does happen corporately, and, and there's, those are two very different things. So, but, but the at-home worship, I think it primes the pump for being here, and I think being here gives you that kind of kingdom vision that you take back home and you take back to work, and so it's it's supposed to be a kind of a synergy relationship between the corporate and the private. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's bringing my whole self, um, my entire being, Uh, and and that makes gardening worship. (laughs) That makes walking worship makes conversations an act of worship. It's just a choice to bring my whole self under and into God's presence, yeah. under his authority. That's good. You thank them for taking time. I have often said we have, we've had, for church this size, for a mission like ours, we have had worship leaders we don't deserve. <laughs> uh, we have had 
amazing men and women of God who are deeply committed to what is happening here, to this mission. So now it's your turn to talk about worship. If you look in the pocket in front of you, you guys just need to reach behind you. Somewhere in that pocket, it may be behind the Connect card, there's a little uh, index card, and I want you to pull it out. Just find an index card and a pen. Everybody needs one. You need your own. And I want to invite you to answer three questions. You don't need to write your name on the card, but you can if you want to. You're going to turn them in. Uh, if you're online, if you're on Facebook Live, you can just answer in the chat if you'd like to, and then we'll just pull your answers from there. Or you can email me, carolyn at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you pull that up right now, you can email me uh, your answers, and I'll, I'll receive them. Um, but in, for you in the house, you're going to just uh, number your little index card, one through three. And I'm just going to ask you three simple questions. We're going to go through them pretty quickly because I'm looking for your gut level responses. Um, three questions. The first one is, what one word best describes how you experience worship? One word. What one word best describes how you experience worship? Just write your answer. You don't have to write the question. All right, second question. For you, is worship a head exercise or a heart exercise? And you can just write head or heart. And the third question, how would you describe worship at Mosaic when we're at our best? How would you describe worship at Mosaic when we're at our best? And you can take however many words you want for this one. Um, and if you don't get it finished by the time I start talking or moving on, it's okay. You've got the rest of this message to do that. And we're going to hold on to these cards because at the end of the service, you're going to use them again, and then they'll be part of our response time. So let's talk about Isaiah for a few minutes. We're going to go a little long today, but not a lot long. Um, but so I see what time it is. Don't be nervous. <laughs> um, but I want to talk to you about Isaiah because Isaiah's, you know, Isaiah, he's a poet and he's a prophet. And he is, he's had this incredible experience with God that leaves him at sometimes unable to really explain what he's got. And a lot of Isaiah is absorbing this guy. It's almost, like a, it's almost like a kid in a candy shop. You can just feel him grabbing all over the place. And if you're just reading it casually, it would be hard to follow the chain of logic with Isaiah. But there is a chain of logic with Isaiah. The first 39 chapters, 1 through 39, are, are what was mostly in that prophetic section, which they call First Isaiah. I mean, you literally, it almost looks like there's two books there. The, the first section of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, are God saying to Isaiah, you have really screwed up. And here's what's going to happen if you don't straighten up. And here's here, the, the, the heart of what is, has gone wrong with you is you've just forgotten your, 
your first love. You've forgotten me. You've forgotten how to worship me, and you've, you've become self-sufficient, and you keep trying to worship other gods, and, and uh, you, you keep forgetting me, and you keep giving in to the culture and to the other cultures around you. And so, you know, he calls names along the way in Isaiah 1 through 39, just like this is what you've done, and this is what you've done, and this is what you've done, and, and that's where we've been so far in, in, in this series of messages. Today, we turn a corner. Isaiah chapters 40 through 66 are what, I'll give you one guess, what's the name of, what do they call 40 through 66? If this is first Isaiah, this is, yeah, you guys get it, second Isaiah. And so 40 through 66 is second Isaiah. That's what they often call it because it's very different sounding. If if, if 1 through 39 is where we've been, then 40 through 66 is where where we're going. If 1 through 39 is you've really got some soul work to do, 40 through 66 is, all right, we've done that, we've been there, let's move on and let's look at what's ahead, ahead. not just for you, Israel, not just for you, uh, people who are looking for a Messiah, but, but for all of the world who is heading toward the end of time, toward the fullness of time. The Messiah will be described in breathtaking detail in 40 through 66. In fact, next week, Heather will be sharing that picture with you that's so accurate as to be stunning. And since this is where we find the Messiah, Isaiah 40 through 66, this is also where we're going to find grace. So if these are the two halves, then 40 through 43 act like a hinge that hold those two halves together. This is where he says, I need you to get ready. I need you to, uh, you know, we've talked about your sin. We've talked about how God has judged that sin and disciplined it. So now let's talk about the hope and restoration that is ahead for the people of God. And so he says things like, a voice of one calling in the wilderness Prepare the way of, for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a, a path, a highway for our God, because every valley will be raised up, every mountain and hill will be made low, the rough ground will become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And then Isaiah 41, 18. He says, I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and and the parched ground into springs. And then 42.9, he says, see, the former things have taken place and now new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them for you. Skip down to verse uh, uh, 16 in 42.16. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and will make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. And then skip over to 43, 18. He says, listen, forget the former things. Do not dwell on them. This ought to be the, this ought to be the, the, theme verse for all of you who cannot stand it when somebody brings up something you did five years ago when you're in a current argument that they can't win. Don't you hate when people do that? You know, they bring up the old stuff and it's like, I thought we were over that. This is God saying, look, I told you what you've done. Now forget that. 
Don't dwell on the past because I am doing a new thing. See, now it springs up. Don't you see it? I'm making a way in the wilderness, springs in the, streams in the wasteland. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the desert to, to, to give drink to my people, my chosen people, the people I formed for myself. Why? 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 that they may proclaim my praise. What's the end result of all this? Worship. So get ready. Clearly it's a call to prepare, to do a new thing. I don't know if you remember, but, but back in January, we did a whole month of, worship, uh, of uh, messages on that one word, prepare. I felt that was God's word over us for the year. And sure enough, it has certainly been God's word for us over the year. And, and we talked then about the kinds of things we need to prepare for. We need to prepare for the eventual split in the United Methodist Church and, and, and to see what God has for us beyond that and, and to pray into it so that we, are, um, so that we are, are part of something that is full of grace and not animosity. Um, I heard that we should prepare for the return of our people from COVID exile, and that's what we are doing right now. We are, we, when we see, even, even this summer and the series on Isaiah sort of acts like a hinge for us as we forget the, what was behind us and look forward toward what we are building together. We also said in January we prepare for staff shifts, and oh my goodness, how beautiful that has been for us. We've watched two new staff persons come on with the Mosaic Center. We have one more to go on the church side, and, and God is building something here for what's ahead, and it's beautiful. I heard we need to prepare for spiritual shifts in worship, which is exactly what we're doing right now. And then we heard we should prepare for coming revival and renewal in the global church of Jesus Christ. And I'm not just talking about our tribe. I'm talking about the global church of Jesus Christ. Surely, in the wake of a pandemic, there will be revival. Amen? Surely. So this call to prepare is a call to think toward the kingdom on earth and its ultimate fulfillment. I could, if I could uh, put Isaiah 40, 66, 2nd Isaiah in one statement, that would be it. The call, is to, uh, the, the, the call to prepare is a call to think toward the kingdom on earth and its ultimate fulfillment. The call to prepare is a call to think toward the kingdom on earth and its ultimate fulfillment, which means that God's word to Isaiah is very much God's word to us. So how do we shift? From where we've been to where we're going. And I think it starts in worship. And chapter 43 teaches us this. I want you to write this down. Our spiritual restoration of worship springs from three wells. Our spiritual restoration of worship springs from three wells. God, uh, our confession, God's creativity, and holy communion. I'm going to talk about those very briefly. When I think about Holy Communion, think Holy Companionship or Holy Friendship. So our spiritual restoration of worship springs from three wells. Our confession, God's creativity, and Holy Communion. Let's talk about our confession. And, and here's the thing with, verse, uh, with chapter 43. We're dealing with somebody who, um, who's an artist here, who's a poet. and he, It's almost like if you want to think linear, 
through his, his, his thought process, you have to chop 43 up and then rearrange the pieces. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to start with verse 22. He says this, you haven't, you've not called on me, Jacob. You've not wearied yourselves for me, Israel. You've not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, not honored me with your sacrifices. I have not, I have not burdened you with grain offerings. I have not wearied you with demands for incense. You have not brought any fragrant calamus for me or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices. Here's basically what he is saying. He's saying, you want to say that the things I'm asking of you are one too many. But I want to tell you, not only are they not one too many things for you, but you haven't even done it. That's what he's saying. Not only is it not one too many things, you're not even, you're not even bringing the, the, the bare minimum. Here's, here's what you are doing. You have burdened me. You're, you're claiming that I've burdened you. Let me tell you something, Israel. Let me tell you something, people of God. You have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offenses. I, even I, listen to this. I'm the one who blots them out. Why in the world would you not bring them to me? I have power over them. I'm the one who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, remembers your sins no more. So come on. He goes back. He he pulls back in from Isaiah chapter 1. Come on. Review the past for me. Let's argue it out. This is Isaiah 1.18. I love that. Give me your best. State the case for your innocence. I bet you're not going to fare as well as you think you are. So he says to us here, all this stuff you think is just a burden for you, it's actually designed, this is what we were talking about here, Cindy, Chris, and I, it's designed to to release freedom. If I could do one thing for you, one thing for you, I would tell you to change your relationship with 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 the work of confession. Receive it as a gift. Because it isn't as if he doesn't already know. And, 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 and confession actually is a freedom act. So go ahead, tell him. Tell him what you think is wrong with him. Tell him what you think is wrong with you. Tell him what you think is wrong with the world. Get over it, he says, because I want to do a new thing in your life. Argue it out with me, he says. Worship begins with our confession. That's where good worship starts. Whatever is, whatever is, is, is covering, it, keeping you from seeing yourself, from seeing God, from seeing worship the way it ought to be. I love this when Paul, Paul brings forward the story of when, when Moses came out of the tent of meeting, that he, he and God would meet like friends face to face, and he would be wearing a veil so they wouldn't be overwhelmed by the glory they got on his face. And, and Paul kind of takes it and he twists it a little bit. And he says, maybe it's time to take the veil off so somebody can see the glory. <laughs> Isn't that the best? <laughs> like maybe you're wearing a veil because you are afraid somebody might catch you in the act of worship. Maybe you need to take the veil off. Confess what stands between you and God. Then the second thing he wants us to do, because our spiritual restoration of worship springs from three wells, our confession, God's creativity, and holy communion. The second thing, look at verse 14. 
This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I want you to underline that phrase. It's huge for us. In the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator, your king. And this is what the Lord says. You made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Stop dwelling on the past. Please don't drag your guilt and shame in here every single week. That might just be me saying that, not Jesus, I don't know. But, see, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive that I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland? I took verses 14 to 18 into the prayer closet this past week, and I just used them devotionally. And I was stunned by a couple things. I tell you, the first one that just kind of slayed me was that, that phrase, in the, in the ships in which they took pride. I mean, talk about a moment for confession. I had to ask myself, where in my life am I building ships in which I took pride? Where in my life am I looking at an ocean between me and the thing I need to get to? And I said, well, there's an ocean here. I guess I better get to building a ship. And I build a ship, and I get it out in the middle, way too far to go back, but not close enough to get there. And the ship springs a leak. And now I'm patching holes. I'm mending sails. Because I chose to build a ship built on my own self-effort rather than lean on the God who cuts away through the waters, who saw the Israelites through the, the, the Red Sea, rather than leaning on the Jesus who will just up and walk across the water like there is a pathway there. <sighs> when he does that, it usually scares the heck out of the disciples. Where am I leaning on ships in which I take pride? Rather than leaving my ship. In fact, burn the ship. Burn the ship. And walk on water, friends. So when I, burn, when, I, when I confess my sins, when I burn my ships, now, now, now I am close enough to hear what Jesus really wants to say to me. Those are the things that need to happen before I can set you down in the middle of Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 7. And that's where I want to set you right now. That's where I want to leave you this morning. Our spiritual restoration of worship springs from three wells. Our confession, God's creativity, and holy communion or holy friendship. Uh, i got to move on here. Um, yeah. Oh, holy friendship. For, um, Aristotle, who um, lived about 350 years before Jesus. Aristotle 
uh, talked about, he, his, his, you know, his most famous work is a book on, or volumes on ethics, and inside those volumes on ethics, probably his most famous thoughts were around what makes a good life. He called it eudaimonia, that was the Greek word, which is really, that people, people translate it the good life, but really it's flourishing, but if you really, really want to get to the root of that word in the Greek, it's joy. This famous Greek philosopher is just trying to help you get to joy. And he talked about, in the context, he said, if you want to get to eudaimonia, it begins with your friendships, and you need to learn which friendships lead toward joy. He felt like the, the path to the good life leads through the quality of your friendships, your relationships, your ability to be a relational being. So he talked about three kinds of friendships. He talked about a friendship of utility. A friendship of utility is like, you know, the, the guy you play golf with because he has the golf membership. That's a friendship of utility. Um, and you guys can have a good time together, but probably the day that he lets go of his golf membership at that club, you're probably not going to see each other as much anymore. You've got one. You know, it's the people you play a game with, but, you know, when the game's over, they're probably not the people you hang out with anymore. Those are friendships of utility. They happen at work as well. We like each other at work. We need each other, but it's just a, that's a friendship of utility. And then there are friendships of pleasure, that may be the guy you go play golf with and you don't need his membership, but she's just somebody you enjoy playing golf with and everything is fine. But you're not in it to have any kind of deep personal relationship with this guy. You're just in it to enjoy something together. Friendships of pleasure. Aristotle said both of those friendships, friendships of utility, friendships of pleasure, both of those friendships tend not to be permanent. They tend to, they tend to fade away pretty quickly because they're not built on anything deeper than my own preferences or the other person's preferences. So they're, they're transitory. But then there's a third kind he talks about, the friendship of virtue or the friendship of the good. That's a friendship between two people who are, who are in it for each other, with each other, for no other reason than to, as Paul would say, provoke one another to acts of love and kindness. We are there to provoke, the, to, to pull the best out of each other. Not, 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 in a, not in a pressure kind of way, not that, but just I'm, I'm with you because I love you, because I love you, because I love you. That's it. And here's the interesting thing. While the other two relationships, a friendship of utility, a friendship of pleasure, they tend to fall apart when things go bad. A friendship of virtue, of the good, of flourishing, of joy, they actually get better in hard times. Does that sound familiar to you? And I'm thinking about that this week. And I'm thinking about, and then we just had a hard time here, people. We just had a really hard time. And I'm thinking, wow, that explains a lot because we've lost some friends. But then there are some other people that it's gone really deep with. You know, it's gotten even better because of the hard time. And that, friends, that is the friendship that God wants with you. That, that friendship of virtue, that desire for your flourishing, for your joy, that, that's where all this is headed. That's the foundation of good worship. And it starts with God, and it is reciprocated by us. God says, because I love you, 
Because I love you. Because I love you. That's it. And our job is to say back, not what hell are you going to get me out of? What, what ocean are you going to get me across? What thing are you going to help me with? But because I love you back. And that's what I want you to hear as I set you down in the middle of 43, 1 through 7. I want you to close your eyes right now. Just close your eyes and listen to this. I want you to bathe in these words. This is the reciprocal friendship and the promise and the commitment and the covenant. I want you to feel it. I want you to feel it. And you'll want these words to be about you, but they aren't first of all about you. They aren't even first of all about the Israelites. These words are first of all about God. I'm reading from a version called The Message because this one just feels good to me. But now, God's message. The God who made you in the first place. The one who got you started. This is God speaking. Don't be afraid. I've redeemed you. I've called your name. You're mine. When you're in over your head, I will be there with you. When you're in rough waters, you will not go down. When you're between a rock and a hard place, it won't be a dead end because I am your God. I am your personal God. The Holy One of Israel your Savior. I paid a huge price for you. All of Egypt with rich Cush and Seba thrown in. That's how much you mean for me. I will add this commentary, the cross. That's how much you mean for me. That's how much I love you. I'd sell off the whole world to get you back. Trade the creation just for you. So don't be afraid. I'm with you. I'll round up all your scattered children. I'll pull them in from east and west. I'll send orders in north and south. Send them back. Return my sons from distant lands, my daughters from faraway places. I want them back. Every last one who bears my name. Every man, woman, and child whom I created for my glory. Yes, personally formed. I made each one. I want them back. Why? Because I love you. That is the nature of God's friendship. This is what God brings into the worship experience. He says, because I love you, I am with you. Not because you've done everything just right, but because you're gifted and cute. I am with you because I love you. Because you are. There's a profound poem written by Raymond Carver. 
that feels like commentary on Isaiah 43. I want you to listen to this just like you listened to what I just read. This is a little poem. It says, And did you get what you wanted from this life, even so? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved? To feel myself beloved on this earth? Friend, you are beloved on this earth. And the unforced response to that truth is praise. Out of that holy communion, praise. So here is your response. I want to ask you to take that card we had, turn it over to the fresh side. I want you to write what the belovedness makes you feel. I want you to forget the former things. I want you to imagine that God is doing a new thing. And I want you, if you've got something, some ocean between you and a goal in your life or a thing you've got to get through, if you've got that, I want you to write a prayer of confidence in the God who delights in you. He is tickled to be your God. He can't believe he gets to be your God. He chose you. And he is your God. And he is there to help you. He will be with you because he loves you. That's the promise. So what will you write to him? What will you write to him? Here's what you're going to do. You're going to write it. And then you're going to come up and you're going to bring your card. You're going to lay it here on the scripture. And you're going to take out one of these little cups. They're up here. can't imagine talking about holy communion, holy friendship, and not doing holy communion. But today we're going to do it in a very personal and intimate way. It's yours. This is your kind of sensory response. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.